For August 8th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 162, The Apes of Wrath. Spoiler alert for Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Zombieland, The Wire, and The Grapes of Wrath. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the sunny shores of California, uh, probably the most moderate climate in the country right now. Probably one of the more pleasant places to be, because it's just been a heat wave across America. A heat wave! Uh, I'm burning in my heart! I'm apparently your very highly caffeinated host, Matthew Rather, uh, with my pips, uh, led by Mark Lee. The Chief Pip. <laughs> uh, here to overthink all manner of popular culture, including the Planet of the Apes, or the rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, which is us. And the apes are we. Um, but uh, in honor of the downgrading of the U.S. credit rating, uh, what pop culture phenomenon, the question of the week, what pop culture phenomenon would you like to downgrade to double A plus? That is, it's still very damn good. It's still a strong investment, uh, but not totally faultless uh, as it was before. So, uh, first in the alphabet, he's always a triple A in my book. It's Peter Fenzel. <laughs> hey, how's it going, hey, man? I'm pretty good. How are you? It's good. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So uh, one of the things about uh, downgrades in credit, and I'm not allowed to talk about finance too much on the podcast because of rules with my work, but one of the things about credit ratings is you know, as a credit rating goes down or as this, uh, the risk profile of that asset goes up. And so if I were to pick somebody who has been broadly seen, if not by everybody on this podcast, then certainly by like the – or everybody listens to the podcast, then certainly the preponderance of people, uh, which includes a great many people that I, a smaller number of people choose to ignore the opinions of. Uh, and I, I'd say, okay, I want to downgrade somebody a little bit, and I want to have them take on a little more risk. I want to see like a riskier asset out of this person, maybe get a little bit more performance out of them because they're certainly not the AAA that they used to be. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Katy Perry who uh, I, I definitely see as, like, a triple-A pop act, like, a couple years ago or, like, a year ago, right? Um, like, her, her sort of, like, like, you know, the California Girls song. I mean, it's not good, um, but it's triple-A. Like, it, it accomplishes what it's trying to accomplish with, like, an absolute minimum of risk and an absolute minimum of return. Um, so, in that <laughs> case, it's triple-A pop hit. Um, and, of course, this is ironic for Katy Perry because of the um, – the, the the letters that she generally associates her dimensions with are a little bit higher, but uh, I'll dodge away from that, and I will say that I'm not particularly impressed by Last Friday Night. Um, it lacks even the charm of a, that's what you get for waking up in Vegas, um, and so uh, I will uh, <laughs> and as such, I will downgrade her to uh, to uh, 36 AA plus. Um, <laughs> So that she can challenge herself to take on more risk and perhaps like go to a developing nation and uh, and something along those lines. She must. She must. She must develop her risk profile. Uh, very well. Very well said, sir. Very well said. We this is this is one of those podcasts where we're going to regret not having a woman on, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Those happen from time to time. We need them to chin check us every once they in a do, while. They, our- they happen almost every week, really. I don't think they happen every. I think every once in a while something special happens. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are varying degrees of regression. 
This is not all. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like all happy podcasts are the same. Every unhappy podcast (laughs) is unhappy in its own way. Uh, All right. Uh, Turning now to Chief uh, Chief Pip, uh, a man who can not only hit a high A, but a high triple A. It's Mark Lee. Wow. That's a that's a good intro there. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to top that. Good night, everybody. No. All right. I got uh, I got two answers. Neither of them are particularly as well founded in finance as Pete's answer. Uh, but such as it is, first is going to be Mad Men, which was perfect in its explanation uh, or description of other people to me. But uh, as you probably know, Netflix uh, you know was added to Netflix and streaming. I saw the first three episodes or so, and pretty good for sure, pretty good. But um, you know, a little bit slow at times, a little bit like oh, Don Draper just makes out with anyone and anything at any given time. Um, on the roof of the dogs. That was kind of weird. Uh, and But just more generally, right? anything that is described in such high ideal praise will inevitably fall short of those high expectations, right? Yeah, I mean, I thought the thing about Mad Men, you know, there are only a few individual episodes of Mad Men that are really, really awesome. I felt like the real allure of Mad Men, which sort of takes a little while, is to get immersed in it and to kind of get pulled into its aesthetic, right? Like get really uh, I stuck in Don Draper's hair product. Well, not just in Don Draper. I mean, it's not even really about about Don Draper as much as it is about just the sort of general uh, paradigm of uh, of this, the way that the early '60s are represented. And I think the later in the '60s it gets, the less compelling it gets because it gets sort of less foreign and it loosens up a little bit too much. But yeah, I mean, I would agree with you in terms of a downgrade of Mad Men. They've certainly had some problems with you know getting their uh, getting their show on the road, so to speak, that would lead one to lose confidence in them a little bit. Um, but I'm not surprised that you're not too wowed by it. I mean, I liked it, and, and I know I wouldn't true. say it's that's bad. True. That's true of every season of Mad Men, don't you think, Pete? That like it kind of starts slow and picks up steam at about the the what the forty percent mark. Yeah, I think that's 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 about right. There are they, Mad Men is not afraid to have long stretches where not much is going on um, because they're really relying on their tone to keep your attention. Uh, I think is is how it works. It's also okay, so it's about, in a in a show that's about the past. It's kind of about the passage of time. I mean, I I don't mean to sound like sound like a film studies d bag or anything like uh, you know anything like that. You know, it it establishes a very slow rhythm, and it's only your you know quick cut sensibility that I don't I don't mean that at all. But it it does. It's about kind of the passage of time in a lot of senses, and about like the pastness of the past, and you know about kind of what happens to make then into now, and so kind of it it does make you experience the passage of time maybe too much maybe you just sit there too much but it's not afraid to, to take its time right all right so if i right. keep investing in mad men bonds then the uh, the rating will return back to triple a is that what we're saying well perhaps well just check in with us soon i don't want to guarantee anything right now you know we really we really it's not really the committee's still out we still got to make some calculations on the projections and it's just at this point we're really we're really putting it on watch I think yeah also uh past you know past performance is is no guarantee of future success oh that is certainly true that is what she said um another quickly just to throw in something else it just came to me is actually um overthinking it uh the almost uh, mascot or hero dot com no. <laughs> no. <laughs> is uh, overthinking it the hero Chris, uh, Chris uh, why am I blanking on the the guy Christopher Chris Nolan? Nolan Christopher yeah. Nolan yeah um, because given the, uh, the sort of the lackluster uh, teaser trailer for uh, The Dark Knight Returns and you then, mean the, the unicorn movie is that what you're talking about <laughs> the unicorn movie right um, Have you seen, you've seen that right the poster I, of the what no what are, Look oh, at yeah, it! Look so at the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, look at the Dark Knight Rises poster right now. In fact, if you're listening to the podcast and you have access to a computer, Google Dark Knight Rises 
right? And then, uh, oh, you know what? If it doesn't actually have the teaser poster right up, uh, right up front. Um, oh wait, no, I spelled Dark Knight wrong. That's why. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you find that Dark Knight teaser poster, it's got like the bat that's framed and like the falling uh, debris of the of the Gotham skyline. And once you see the shape of a unicorn in it, it's impossible to unsee. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I got it, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My life has been changed. Anyway, so I'm downgrading Christopher Nolan from AAA to AA plus, not because of this unicorn that I'm now seeing and mesmerized by, uh, more so because of the lackluster uh, the pre, uh, teaser trailer and the recently released pictures of Selena Kyle, who may or may not be Catwoman. In fact, it might be very possible that she's not Catwoman at all. But anyway, these pictures recently released, uh, not exactly inspiring of of of. I guess the things that people associate with, with that people want to associate with Catwoman, that being a lot of TNA and uh, spandex, um, or not, not even that, but just sort of like any sense of excitement, you know, can I, can or otherwise. I, can I micro rant on this? Because it's like Please. Christopher Nolan in the Dark Knight series gets so much cred for taking Batman out of the superhero context and making it into a movie that's like grittier and like more realistic and kind of more representative of what humanity is like and like more mature but like god forbid he touched the dominatrix right like god forbid <laughs> god forbid he just scale back the woman in like the cat suit with the whip just like a little bit it's like oh you can you can make my batmobile into an urban assault vehicle like you can turn my joker into a like a a, like a somewhat joyless and all too, all too nihilistic sociopath, but if Catwoman becomes even a little bit less than a total sex pot, I get pretty pissed off. Like even if it's only in one picture that is a production still, <laughs> yeah. and like not even from the movie, like it's it's like a picture of the actress on one of the props from a bad angle, and everyone's like, "Oh, I'm checking out of this one because there's no <laughs> TNA in it." I mean, for for goodness sake, like I know that people like to rationalize and they want plausible deniability for their nerd sexism, and I enable you to an extent but in this case i'm kind of ashamed like give it a freaking <laughs> moment part of this is because of my fondness for uh, anne hathaway of course which knows uh insufficient bounds to even dull my affection for her oscar hosting but still that was more than a micro rant but like come on let's cut her a break let's give it a chance um <laughs> I agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the Unicorn movie has got me all worked up, so uh, mm-hmm. I'll have to I'll have to wait for Unicorn movie two. I guess we'll see how that works. <laughs> <laughs> the gritty, the gritty sequel, <laughs> or the yeah. or the reboot, Corn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jordan Stokes has not three A's but three O's in his name, uh, but that doesn't mean he's a zero by any means. He's all aces in my book. Jordan! Sorry, I was trying to, <laughs> How's like, it going? I was doing the best I can. I don't know. That was pretty good, I've got to say. Um, I'm going to downgrade Star Wars. And now a lot of you might think that this is, this is kind of ridiculous because uh, how was Star Wars holding on to that AAA, right? Like, clearly, its <laughs> best days are behind it. It hasn't done anything really amazing uh, in the, you know, certainly not in the 21st century, right? But I think that... Um, in many ways, this is a better parallel for the U.S. Uh, bond rating, right? That, like, Star Wars had that because for so long, liking Star Wars was so much part of what being a geek was all about that it was unthinkable that you could downgrade the franchise as a whole uh, from that AAA to a AA+, despite the fact that, like, it's, it's been embarrassing itself all over the place um, and is losing out to, you know... Uh, 
more vigorous, um, less sort of, in some ways, less respectable, but uh, but certainly more creative and uh, more daring economies uh, of, of like geeky movies, like I don't know, coming out of places like uh, like China and India, such as uh, God of Cookery and uh, I don't know some Bollywood musical that I can't think of off the top of my head right now, and <laughs> and I'd say that uh, that right now, right, like. It's still a double A plus, not because I seriously think that Star Wars is going to turn itself around, but because even though we all know that its prime has passed, still, where else are you going to go with like your your geek identification and uh, getting all excited about dollars metaphorically, right? At the end of the day, you know that you can go to any science fiction convention anywhere in the world and start talking about Star Wars and people will listen to you. So it's still a sound investment, you know, even though it's not what it once was. Yeah, I don't know, man. If if the U.S. government put Jar Jar Binks on its balance sheet, I think I'd start trading my dollars for skee-ball tickets. <laughs> well, the, the, the skee-ball tickets can get you, like, the big stuffed bear, right? Which you can't just flat-out buy. So the skee-ball tickets are actually much more valuable. <laughs> Is that – it must be uh... – it must be harder <laughs> to buy the bear than to win it at skee ball, right? Like, I don't go to a lot of stores where I see big stuffed bears. I mean, I guess I don't have children or, like, I don't have little nieces or nephews uh, or anything like that. I, I actually do. We're just not a very close family. <laughs> you just don't go to F.A.O. Schwartz is what you're saying. Yeah, I don't go I'm to F.A.O. Schwartz. <laughs> I'm just a terrible uncle. But, um, you know, so the only time I come in, uh, come into contact with a giant stuffed bear is, you know, one, in, in my sex dreams, and two, <laughs> in uh, when I, you know, go down to the boardwalk and play some skee ball. So, like, it is impossible to get a big stuffed bear any other way than, than so, Sorry, Matt, I hate to break it to you, but Amazon.com, Jumbo, Brown, Teddy Bear, it's the size of a small child, 6178, uh, qualifies for free super saver shipping. <laughs> hey, hey, is there a website you can go to where you can, like, pay them dollars and, like, get tickets that you can trade for giant stuffed animals if you, or if, like, you win games? Because, like, that, that should totally thing. exist. If there's, like, a carnival game website that you can actually win giant stuffed bears on, that will be awesome. So I kind yeah, of, I kind of want to, uh, <laughs> I kind of want to go onto eBay right now and make a dummy account where I claim to be, like, the world's greatest skee-ball player, and I've just been <laughs> stockpiling the tickets, and I will sell them to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like hundreds of these bears, that, and you and you give each bear the story of what game you won them at, at what amusement park or carnival. Oh, no, not even. Like I, I don't even have the bears. I just have tickets, right? Like oh, I've already won just... all the prizes, so now right. I just stockpile the tickets, and I figure I can I can sell them to you. Right? Is there? Do you That's... think there's much of a of a like at, inside the Chuck E. Cheese? Do you think there's much of a secondary market in uh, in tickets? Like we're, when you played skee ball or you know whack a mole or whatnot as a young child. Uh, I know that, that when I was a kid and went to Chuck E. Cheese, there was one ticket, there was one trick, uh, which is when you were about to rip your tickets off, you would just apply a little pressure trying to pull out uh, as though you were, you know, trying to pull out more tickets and usually a few more would, would actually come out and then you could rip off with your ill-gotten half dozen extra tickets. But um, was there, I mean, was there ever like a big kid in the corner who would beat you up and take your tickets? Do you guys have experience with that? I don't be, and I, and I think the reason is that the scale of the quality of prizes relative to the quality of tickets is per- perverse. At, like we have these places on the highway here in New Jersey, not well, here in New Jersey, but where I grew up in New Jersey, 
called like Sports World, right? Was a good example. And I mean, you could play skee ball for an hour or so, and if you were a child, uh, and get enough tickets to get like a little rubber hand that would stick to things. But to get anything good, like it seemed to me that you had to play skee ball for an unfathomable amount of time, right? Like, like, like this guy could rob every child in sports world of all the tickets they had at that moment and still not have enough for any of the good presents. Right. It was just, sure. it just see, I don't know if you guys ran into that kind of same uh, pricing scheme, but I think, I think it's the idea is that the, the best prizes are re- reserved for people either for nobody or for people who are really repeat customers who just go all the time um, and get kind of obsessive about it. But most people who go to amusement parks don't go all the time, like every day. So I don't know. That's my experience with it anyway. And I'm glad that we're sharing this with everybody at home because I feel like this is useful for them to know. And I, I feel like people need to share this story because it's just like, you know, it's sort of like a, a suffering we've all gone through as children. <laughs> Share your story in the comments. We want to hear about your ticket stories. We want to hear about that currency. I want to hear about people overseas, whether they had the tickets in their in their carnivals and fairs. You know, because right, I know exactly. they have things like yeah, yeah. In, in elsewhere in the world, like in Europe, when when you know when you play those terrible rigged carnival games, what do you get at the end? You know, probably like cheese or something. Right, right, right. This is going to be one of those podcasts where we're sad that we don't have a European on, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) If only we had a European woman who is on this podcast. Um, All right, me. Uh, I'm going to downgrade Burn Notice to uh, a double A plus. It's uh... what? (laughs) You just lost me so much money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm still gonna gonna. Uh, I'm still going to watch every episode. I still think it's a solid investment. It's just, it's just not uh, sort of perfect the way the first couple couple seasons were. Like, I, I think they've reached the point. Jordan, don't you think they've reached the point where they've told the stories that that they have to tell, and now kind of the wheels are spinning a little bit? Like, how many more ways? How many more ways can you know? I don't know. Innocent single mothers fi- get into you know terrible scrapes with low lives that Michael has to uh, rescue them from. You know? It's true that at the at the end of the last season, Michael Weston was reinstated in his job at the CIA, which, which would seem to be, you know, narrative closure. <laughs> I was like, uh, like I was, when the guy broke out of prison in Prison Break, right? Yeah, yeah. you're like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> show's over. Nope. I, I was uh, I was talking about this with, uh, well, with my wife. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about this with my wife, and she pointed out that the opening uh, credits to Burn Notice, which for those of you who don't watch the show, it's kind of interesting that the opening credits are narration rather than a song or anything. So it comes as like, I'm Michael Weston. I used to be a spy. And they're like, nope, you are a spy now. And later on, when he's like, you, uh, you get anyone who's willing to help you, like your trigger-happy ex-girlfriend. And nope, you're currently dating her. You've moved in together. Like, <laughs> they, really, they, need to, they need to, if anything, update their credits, at least, right? Here's another gripe I have about Burn Notice. Not to, you know, not to just turn it into a kind of show and tell of gripes that I have about Burn Notice, but let me do a little show and tell with gripes that I have about Burn Notice. Um, Jordan, don't you think that in the voiceover, Michael sounds like he's always slightly annoyed with you? It's not like, you know, being a spy, you meet lots of interesting people. It's, uh, being a spy, you meet lots of interesting people. Like he's told you three times before and is kind of impatient with you. Being a spy, also, you meet lots of interesting people. Yeah, it's like he's not as high energy as you are. Though, no, though. yeah, like I, can't, like, I can't quite do it right. 
He's the high school civics teacher who knows that you're not going to remember this. And he said it like a hundred times. So it's like, you know, the executive, the judicial and the legislative. After versions have passed both houses of Congress, they go to committee. Right. And it's exactly that kind of tone. I think that's great, though. I think that it's, it's like kind of a necessary aspect. I do find myself, though, wishing for like the one spy gimmick that actually gets him excited. You know, to like have him say, start out saying like, well, this one is actually pretty cool or yeah. something like that. <laughs> he is very blasé about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, Planet of the Apes, who's uh, Mark and um, Mark and Jordan saw it. So Pete and I will act in the role of uh, Socratic interlocutors um, in in the grandest sense. What is this a movie about? Monkeys? <laughs> is that really the grandest sense? Isn't the grandest sense that it's about a planet? Or is it mostly just about the apes without the planet really featuring heavily in the story? It's about... I'll, I'll take a stab at this. Yeah. And, and Jordan, just to hop in here if I'm sure. not capturing this correctly, which is highly likely. Um, I think it's a, mostly about... Uh, and and their science and it goes awry when they try to use it to to help ourselves, right? I mean, it's uh, I guess the same sort of, same sort of thing with Terminator, right? I know I have to bring it to Terminator, right? You know, our technology, our vaunted technology, our computer technology, is supposed to make things better, winds up bringing about our own destruction because we don't know how to use it properly, right? So in this right. case here, the the science, you know, the James Franco character is tr- is trying to cure alzheimer's a very noble thing right you know he's mm-hmm. using sort of a gene therapy drug or actually no it's not really genetics it's but it's some sort of virus that does stuff and well let's not get into the science right now we can come back to it later uh, but anyway you know no very noble and very noble uh, goals uh things go awry in a big way right they don't follow proper procedures they take risks etc um and there's greed that comes into play as well and next thing you know uh you know apes are taking this over so, so my question about this movie, because I saw the trailers to the movie, the movie kind of looks like Deep Blue Sea, right? Which Deep Blue Sea is the movie where Samuel sharks... Jackson gets eaten by a shark. Yeah, exactly. Where there's this, like underwater research lab, and they've discovered that shark brains are can cure Alzheimer's. So they genetically engineer sharks, giant brains, which take over the research facility, right? Which is an elegant storyline. So how do how rapidly or how do the the monkeys like the apes reproduce because there are so, not a lot of chimpanzees in the world like even if chimpanzees were 10 times as smart as people like it would still be hard for the chimpanzees to take over because there are not a lot of them and they don't create children very So a, a couple of things uh, first about the comparison to deep blue sea i've only seen parts of it uh, namely the part where samuel l jackson gets eaten yeah. Uh, at an unpredictable time, and I'm pretty sure that the sharks are no. You don't. You don't really sympathize with sharks, do you? Uh, only if you are the kind of person who's impressed by things that are awesome. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, you're not intended to sympathize with the sharks, presumably. Right. It depends whether Nietzsche would describe you as a, as a bird of prey or as a lamb. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that is to say that the, the movie really plays up the sympathy for the apes, and it's a, a lot. There's a lot of like ape relationship and character establishment. Uh, oh, that's good. Or not, it works amazingly well. We can talk about the special effects later, uh, but that's just to address that one uh, comparison to like it's not just a simple monster movie, right? Where apes like totally go bonkers and start killing people, right? 
there yeah, you, sympath- you sympathize with them and one of the one of the most interesting things about this movie for people who haven't seen it yet is like you'd think from the advertising that it's a james franco movie but actually it's an andy circus in cgi monkey suit yeah, movie definitely. james franco is like a supporting actor and, and by the way before we get too much further into this should we just we're not really spoiling we're that either this is not a spoiler alert for this right are we going to keep this safe for those who haven't seen it do we? I mean, because really it's to? kind of spoilerable. There are some really, really like okay. not necessarily surprising, but really great moments that I wouldn't want ruined. So oh, but we, I feel like we we have to talk about them if we're going to talk about the things that are interesting, right? Like, I don't know. I don't think they'll mind. I think we can go ahead and yeah, spoil them. Go go ahead and spoil them. We do halfway, it for all halfway, the mo- halfway through the movie. Bill Murray shows up as a you know as a monk. <laughs> hey, I had that spoiled for me for Zombieland, and I was not happy about that. But anyway, yeah, by the way, spoiler alert for Zombieland. Just FYI. <laughs> by the way, I believe this movie is a remake, right? So it's not like it's tremendously spoiled, isn't it? A remake of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes from like, like sort of vaguely. Um, Kind of, you know, we yeah. got a we got a really mean comment on our Zazzle store where you can buy the overthinking it T-shirts. There's who a, went there? <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a shirt that uh, that has a a pretty horrific spoiler for the wire that I think <laughs> that I think one of the uh, like a season five spoiler, a five years in the making. You've you've held on spoiler, <laughs> um, and I think Sheely, like in a fit of peak. <laughs> one day uploaded this thing to to our store and i left it there because i thought it was funny but i found i got a i got an email notification of a comment on our store that was like not cool guys not cool uh, the, uh, <laughs> Just a full disclosure, it was me <laughs> i put it on there <laughs> oh, did you? We, yeah i put on the Zazzle site and we never like put on the overthinking inside to advertise it because i was being a little bit bad about the nature of the spoiler yeah. Well, but, I mean, apparently you tagged it with the wire so that people who are searching on, <laughs> on the Zazzle store for the wire stuff come up with your your season five spoiler. Oh. But I mean, did, any, did anybody ever buy my Godfather Game Theory t-shirt? Because I thought that one was good. <laughs> I don't understand how that shirt is even a spoiler. It could be any Omar, right? It could, it could be- <laughs> It could be Umar ibn al-Khattab, the second rightly guided caliph. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a spoiler to this tragic second season of Wild and Crazy Kids when Omar Gooding is killed in a terrible accident that also cripples Donnie Jeffcoat. Oh, but- <laughs> God. Oh, the hate mail. I'm <laughs> anyway, back to Bro, Planet of the Apes, guys. Fenzel at overthinkingit.com. Also Lee also Lee at overthinkingit.com. Oh, it's... You guys, I'm sorry about spoiling Wild and Crazy Kids. <laughs> it's very sad. Can we set up hate mail at overthinkingit.com? <laughs> okay, so the other part of the question, the answer the answer the question is the question is about multiplying how fast the apes multiply. So, uh, Jordan, again, jump in here as you will, but there's definitely a multiplication problem. Not so much of like actual breeding and reproducing and you know birthing more intelligent apes. You don't see that. In this right there's like there's a concentration of apes and and uh, some of them get sort of you know leveled up with more intelligence and others are just sort of along for the ride they do go to the zoo of course that's where you get more you recruit more apes there um but the sort of the root question here is how uh, does a seemingly small number of apes uh take over the entire world right this is the math that just doesn't add up uh, and this is this is spoiler territory here. Um, it's revealed at the very end of the movie that um, the same drug that made the 
uh, the apes intelligent uh, made people sick and that causes an uh, a worldwide epidemic that kills a lot of people oh well that's kind of a cop out see in, in the 19 yeah in 1972 in conquest of the planet of the apes which has a solid 5 out of 10 on imdb <laughs> uh, the apes are oh by the way if you've never seen the truly lesser planet of the apes movies like they are a treat and don't watch <laughs> any of them in its entirety just watch like individual scenes they basically yeah. take the costumes out of the closet and like do random stories with them um, <laughs> but in this particular story like the the intelligent apes right uh are slaves like they they like are in great number they are like slaves of people and so they it's like an actual slave like it's not like monkey apes like rise up and revolt it's like intelligent ape slaves like (laughs) which just have silly heads uh rise up and revolt and take over the planet uh and the fact that they are monkeys is somewhat uh trivial to what happens Um, I mean, that's, uh, but even that, like, already is sort of a sellout of the implied reason that people aren't around anymore from the original Planet of the Apes, which is that based purely upon when it came out, that the the U.S. and the Soviet Union had blown each other up with nukes, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which really, that would take a lot of gas out of it if it was an accident that was, like, totally unpredictable. No, but it wasn't an accident, though. Again, going back to the the theme of, you know, hubris and, you know, man's uh, abuse of science, right? The drug gets out and it was because of some reckless behavior. Yeah. An utterly preventable accident, right? So like the message of the first planet of the apes is like uh, nuclear disarmament. And uh, the message of this planet of the apes movie, if you want to boil it down to that is like install better safety protocols in your lab. When you're messing with a, a virus that you think people can get infected with and you have no idea what the heck it does to them or how contagious it might be, like, you know, use more than a painter's mask to, to keep it out of the <laughs> and, you know, and this, this is This is why I sometimes am a little bit incredulous when people complain about a post 9-11 world because to me this shows that pe- people have like that the, the degree of concern and things to worry about in the world has like dialed down a notch <laughs> you know it's like we're not <laughs> no longer really worried about you know and a, involve a, a like a political situation that's inescapably inescapably destroys the planet like we're more worried about whether people are like numbering their pipettes properly yeah. <laughs> like, <all that>. yeah. <laughs> as bad as it is and it, you know it's it's uh now, that said, from, from purely a filmmaking perspective, though, there is a very noticeable point about halfway through the movie where suddenly there are twice as many apes as there were in any of the previous shots. Because they just realized that when they wanted it to like turn into an action movie, they needed to have way more monkeys on the ground. And but I kind of admire them, actually, for not even worrying about it. <laughs> there's just like a shot where it's like, okay, now there's hundreds of them. Fine. <laughs> and, and I should point out at this point, that uh, in, in spite of these flaws that we're pointing out here and, and some of the silliness of the science, uh, Jordan and I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was really way good. better than it had any right to be. And, uh, you know, get, and, and maybe this turns into this. Let's talk about the Andy Serkis performance. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, and that, which is what really sells, which really makes the movie. And for people who don't know Andy Serkis, he is Gollum. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also like, that's his big... I mean, this is not his first, well, you know. Roll as a monkey. <laughs> his, his first swing across the monkey bars, as it were. <laughs> He's not um, Mighty Joe Young, however, which you can tell from the far inferior characterization. <laughs> Nor the gorilla from the zookeeper, either. <laughs> That's true. They should have gotten him. <laughs> In his words, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 
So, so here's kind of the, the meaningful spoiler, right? Um, which is that about halfway through the movie, uh, at great sort of effort, the monkey speaks. Um, and it's a, it's a shocking moment when you're in the theater, when like uh, suddenly the, uh, like this is the, the character Cornelius, which Andy Serkis has been portraying just through mime and, uh, you know, monkey noises. It was, it was Caesar, actually, was the name. What did I say? Cornelius. Oh, yeah, Caesar. I, begins with a C, is kind of Latin. Um, <laughs> well, Cornelius is one of the major monkeys, one of the major apes in the ape, Planet of the yeah. Apes franchise, so that's not um, totally out of left field. Yeah, yeah. but Caesar, Caesar sort of jumps up and shouts no, and, uh, and the theater, like, bursts into applause. It's a wonder, wonderful uh, coup de cinema. But that makes this, with the zookeeper, the summer of the talking monkey movies, doesn't it? Like, I... I <laughs> <laughs> Were there talking monkeys in Zookeeper? I did not see Zookeeper. All the animals talk in Zookeeper. Really? Wow, that movie sounds stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was just Paul Blart Mall Cop with a different hat. I mean, no, like, no, 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 no. It had t- talking animals. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Not like Kangaroo Jack style talking animals, where there's one scene where Jerry O'Connell is like having a, a hallucination, and then the rest of it is just a heist and caper movie. Um, this is no, actually no. like talking animals through and through. Well, did anyone actually see it? I mean, I suppose we could find out at the very end that uh, that Kevin James's character is like tweaked out on uh, on mescaline or like <laughs> has had a stroke or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you wait to the end of the movie, you realize he comes down off of his high and there's Samuel L. Jackson is there and he's like, Are you done, Paul Blart? Because <laughs> you need to join the Avengers. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making that joke about every movie. Yeah. Dan Craig, the Avengers need you to be a cowboy. <laughs> to fight aliens. Exactly. Aliens. Exactly. Um, no, so again, back to the Planet of the Apes here. Uh, Return to the Planet of the Apes, even to return yeah. to return of the return to the revenge of the rise of the Planet of the Apes. Um, it, it seems like this is a watershed moment in CGI characters, right? That you know we've gone way past Jar Jar Binks. Uh, you know the, the the uncanny valley aside in terms of like fully rendered human characters, right? That I'm sure that's there's plenty of work to be done on that, uh, and we're still ways away from that, uh, but. The ape characters themselves, uh, you're, the 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 illusion, the transformation is is complete. You're yeah. not questioning uh, the fact that these are rendered characters. You really embrace uh, their existence. Yeah, it's not so much that you can't tell that they are rendered because there's still like there are little bits here and there where you're like, okay, that's CGI. But their ability to be to like to depict emotion through body language and facial expression is, you know, tremendous. Um, and th- that's really what, like where, why the movie works is the amount of like, of uh, pathos that they're able to squeeze out of Andy Serkis's CGI rendered monkey face. And then also, I mean, I don't know if they had circus like do all of the eight parts, but um, it, it's not by any means a, a solo ape show. It's an mm-hmm. ensemble ape cast, and all of them, you know, convey just tremendous uh, emotion. He is Caesar is the only one that speaks, uh, but the others, you know, are are as articulate as they need to be. Mm-hmm. So, so do they? One of my other, one of my favorite things about Planet of the Apes is the different kinds of apes. Um, do they have different kinds of apes in this movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's oh, okay. an orangutan. There's a gorilla. 
cool, cool, cool. And they they exam- do they exemplify different? I guess if Caesar's the only one that talks, they don't really show their different personalities and stuff. They do. You sort of see the the cast system from the Planet of the Apes movies in its early stages of development. Like uh, clearly, uh, Caesar Caesar isn't sort of the the ape Spartacus here, right? But uh, his big rivals for who might want to be in charge are other chimpanzees. Um, right. And then the the orangutan, the major orangutan character, sort of falls into a wise counselor role. And I think they were the priests, right? In uh, in Planet of the Apes, correct me there, Mark. Yes. And then uh, then there's a gorilla who's like the enforcer, which makes a lot of sense. Gotcha. Did either of you guys see the Marky Mark Planet of the Apes from like ten years ago? I saw the very end of it, like the ridiculous, makes no sense ending of it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I didn't I, see I it saw myself. It, but I don't remember it really. Yeah, except that I, the apes. The yeah. it, it was. I think there were people in ape suits and not CGI apes, right? There were people. No, in, it was yeah. Yeah, like Helena Bonham Carter and a lot of makeup. Yeah, and and like uh, Tim Roth or something like that, right? Like people in in painstakingly uh, applied ape makeup. Um, I think anyone, though, who thinks we're only now coming into uh, the um, CGI character, the, you know, Hey Dave CGI characters interacting with live action people, needs to see a little movie called Dragonheart. Is that I am the last one? Wait, yeah. Is that that one? Yeah, where Sean yeah. Connery, you know, will bring a tear to your eye. Uh, as but the... wasn't wasn't Dragonheart partially animatronic? Wasn't that like the last big animatronic? Um, wasn't Dragonheart's head at some points a robot? I am the. Maybe last I'm getting one. that wrong. I am the. Yeah. Last. <laughs> well, the dragon yes. now, dog. Well, I mean, the interesting counterpoint to that is that we are at a point where Andy Serkis can put on this performance and it fits right into a regular movie, but we're also at the point where we're, we're kind of hitting the breaking point of a different sort of vision for this sort of movie, um, which is the Zemeckis-style animated feature, right? This is Zemeckis-style, either 3D or 2D, but it's 3D animation, right? whole world is animated. You use motion capture to get the actors uh, into the animation, but it has that... Um, uncanny yeah, effect, it, right? Yeah, right. quite claw its way out of that uncanny valley there. Yeah. yeah. So part of the story of how anima- how CGI characters are crossing that boundary is that people are figuring out how much CGI they can mix with real-life stuff mm-hmm. uh, and, and have it be plausible. Like, if you watch the... Um, excuse me, there's a YouTube video floating around of special effects footage from uh, the Game of Thrones television show yeah. that shows you just how much of it is CGI. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and a ton I of it is CGI. It on, the, uh, on the overthinking of Twitter earlier today. Yeah, and you wouldn't expect watching the show that a ton of it is CGI. Like, you know, they're walking past a, a ruin and the ruin is CGI. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. you don't think that they couldn't just like put up a fake stone wall, but they don't. Um, but they also do... The reason that it's different from something like Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow, and the Star Wars prequels is that they shoot it outside, uh, and mm. they put up a blue screen outside. So they're on location you know, in whatever, like Belarus or Northern Ireland or wherever they're shooting, and, uh, and they add the CGI to the outdoor shot, which is, I think, I mean, that takes a lot more computer savvy than just sort of creating Coruscant, I would suspect. Um, not computer well, savvy. It's also, it, like, it works better, right? Like, uh, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you see one thing that is real, you're less likely to question that the other thing in, like, the corner of your field of vision is also real. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, like, you know, there's this, the scenes where, uh, 
where you know Peter Dinklage is like looking out a window to like a thousand foot drop, and there's and there's wind going in his face, uh, and he's actually looking down like four feet right into like a ball pit or whatever. Not really a ball pit, just a giant piece of blue, uh, and they're blowing a fan at his head. Um, but they built the the castle area around him in that case. But anyway, I think that that there that, have been a couple of videos like that. This uh, this Game of Thrones one is the latest, but there's been one. I mean, not that everyone can publish a video. These special effects houses are advertising their you know their services uh, with these videos, and so like a lot of stuff, like a lot of stuff that you assume is New York is just like twenty square feet of soundstage dressed to look like New York, and the rest is CGI. Uh, Ugly Betty is you know is a lot like that. So if you you know I, yeah. if you Google Google like television special effects. Maybe you'll find these uh, these YouTube videos. And the you know the the I think you 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 guys are right in pointing out that the key is the mix. The key is that that certain parts of it are certain parts of it are real and certain like background parts of it are fake or certain like right. less focal uh, parts of it are fake. Right. 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 So it's just funny because that's how Jurassic Park works. Um, and Jurassic right. Park. Right. Yeah. So we kind of like start around the Jurassic Park area. And then we kind of drift towards this place where people are trying to make movies that are almost entirely CGI with human actors. And I'm sure we'll see more of those. But, and then we drift back. And then people are trying to make entirely CGI movies that are representational rather than presentational, right? Which is like the Polar Express movie failing where like mm-hmm. Wally or The Incredibles succeeds. And then like pulling it back and finding that middle ground. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have to keep our eye on The Adventures of Tintin, though. Because um, that, oh, that's that another looks- one of these uh, mocap ones. Um, yeah, I'm not feeling good about. I don't know about you, but I'm not feeling good about that movie. That movie smacks of Astro Boy to me. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you're a big Tintin fan, right, Jordan? I am a big Tintin fan. Although there, uh, there's certainly unfortunate things about those stories. They were a formative part of my childhood. So I'm, uh, and and I also, I think that Spielberg is generally good at his job. You know. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm keeping an eye on it. I don't know anything about it yet. I don't think anyone does, but it'll be interesting to see whether they can uh, pull something yeah. out. Because right. I don't think that I don't think that that ship has entirely sailed. I feel like I mean, Polar Express, which was mocap, was a was a fiasco by all accounts. <laughs> but I think that um, the Beowulf movie had some good things about it. You know. I guess the Beowulf movie looked pretty bad, but I'm, 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 I watched it in the sense of like a lot of the effects looked pretty rough. Um, yeah. But I guess it got it got uh, it did some things that were kind of cool. I mean, the whole Angelina Jolie thing was kind of cool, at least as a stunt. But what was the movie recently that just totally tanked? Wasn't there Mars like Mars needs moms? Mars needs moms, but it didn't t- tank totally because of the 3D technology, no doubt. Um, there are a variety of reasons why Mars needs moms were, was was not a success. But yeah. <laughs> So Mars know. does not, in fact, need moms. No. This is true. <laughs> Mars, in fact, uh, barely has running water. So, but um, they, I think uh, yeah. <laughs> they massively overinvested in moms, and then, like you know, they cornered a market that wasn't going anywhere. And uh, yeah, I'm downgrading. Yeah. The, I'm downgrading the market in moms on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's definitely... Can can we take this in a different uh, direction? Uh, One of the things that Jordan and I were talking about after we saw this was that this movie falls into a peculiar sub-genre, or maybe super-genre of movies, in which you sort of know how things are going to play out, and they don't end well. Like, this is like... It's not exactly a horror movie, though, because, again, because of so much of it being about the apes and the relationship and you're sort of rooting for the apes against the humans as well mm-hmm. but things just go poorly and you already know this going into it because you know about planet of the apes 
uh, and yet you're interested in seeing how these things turn out, and then your uh, you know and your your loyalties are kind of flopping back and forth throughout the movie. Do we have any other examples of that? Do we have a label? <laughs> I was trying to think. It, was, it would be like if you did another Titanic movie and then like make it from the point of view of the iceberg. Right. And have him sort of like, you know, his father is always telling him, like, you'll never sink a big ship. Like, someday, dad, I'll prove it to you. Right. Um, It's like that kind of sensation. Like the monkeys are running amok and you're going like, yeah, yeah, go monkeys, run amok. Um, I think that yeah, there's a temptation to make movies like that that are just just wretched, wretched cesspools of humanity like Splice. Right where it's like you can't even root for anybody because there are all sorts of horrible things are happening. Um, yeah, we're like. But, yeah. In, I, I read the uh, the plot of that. It's like everyone does things. It's like Law and Order SVU level yeah, uh, yeah, atrocities yeah. going on. Right. This yeah, isn't yeah. that. There's definitely the they hold out the idea that there are individual good people who are quite good, but then there's also lots and lots of bad people who get the sort of comeuppance that is coming to them. Right, right, right. So, um, and we should think about this, if whether there's other examples of this kind of like, you know, sympathetic disaster. Um, I don't know whether the outbreak really qualifies with that monkey. But well, and, <laughs> and the, other, the other sort of thread of it is that it's a movie where you know, just from the title or just from the premise, that it has to end badly, right? So, like, there's a natural disaster that's an actual historical event, or it's a prequel to something where this, this world must have fallen, or right. something like that. Yeah. I'm not, I can't true. think of any, I gotta say. Yeah, we gotta use it. But let me ask this, because this is the question we floated for Cowboys and Aliens, too, which is that if Planet of the Apes is going to be a social allegory in, in this plot line where people are kind of, where the apes are mistreated and don't have rights and, and beaten, around, beaten up a lot and all this other bad stuff, and then they rise and we're sympathetic to them, like, is there a pretty clear social parallel to racial politics or, like, developing world politics, um, you know, the economics of developing countries, um, you know, that, that sort of thing? Are there, are there good co- uh, people of color that are in the movie that get killed by the apes? Um, or all the people killed by the apes white, um, which, which would be, I mean, just either way is an interesting choice potentially if they're, cause it would be done deliberately. Right. Um, there's right. one of the, like the most villainous character, I suppose. Is, he's uh, only marginally villainous in the grand scheme of villainy. But so he's really marked by the movie just because he dies late as, as a villain is yeah. a black guy. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And he's like pretty much the only one. Pretty the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Although you also, I mean, um, he's not the only person with uh, with any melanin in their skin. He's the only black guy. Right. Um, but so he's they're... also he's very very rich and speaks with a British accent. So he's he's othered in that way too. Interesting. Um, interesting. Like yeah. his his function in the, the movie is to be like the big corporate bugaboo. It's the part uh. that um that he always plays that same part. <laughs> you know the guy I'm thinking of. White, gray hair, uh, kind of jowly. <laughs> right? Um, right, right. They gave that role to, uh, to, this, you know, to this other actor, um, right. which is interesting, yeah. So, so, so you think it resists that kind of allegorization? Or? Well, I think if you, if you start... Go on, Mark. Okay, if you're looking for an allegory, a real-world counterpart for this, the best that I can come up with is, like, I guess the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And the oh, Palestinians are, are 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 downtrodden, and they've lashed out and done some bad things. 
but uh, I don't want. I'm gonna stop myself before I get into discussing too hard. Well, no, I mean that that actually makes a lot of sense though because they um they are relatively low technology, um, struggling against people who are you know much higher technology who have guns and they don't in many cases, right. and then um, what they want. This is like sort of a problem for the movie if you think about it too hard, but while you're watching, you don't care. All the apes are trying to do in their uprising within the movie is get across the Golden Gate Bridge and into the uh, the Redwood Forest at Muirwoods. Um, and like somehow that is going to solve all their problems. So they're like they're cordoned off in this kind of like desolate cityscape and they want to like break free to nature. Um, so there's this idea of having enough room to run around in. That's very, very important to the movie. So they're like, they want to get out of their bad situation and like, find freedom in California? So it's like, it's like the Apes of Wrath? Is that what you're saying? Pow! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Zap! Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Is, there, is there a scene where there's a female ape that breastfeeds John Lithgow? Is that, does that happen in the movie? That's a spoiler for the Grapes of Wrath, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I apologize for spoiling an 80-year-old book. Yeah. But, uh, there is a breastfeeding scene in it. Uh, if, if that gets you to read it, you know, I guess I've done something good for the day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, there's, there's also politically, if you think about it politically, it gets very unsettling very quickly because um, I, I had a I post about Game of Thrones and fascist aesthetics on the site uh, a month or so back that got some spirited discussion. Um, but what it gets into is the idea that fascism, both as a political system and as a kind of narrative, you have this charismatic leader that everyone devotes themselves to. And then through that, that sort of nation state is perfected and they cast aside the old world. And as it burns, they sort of rise to uh, to prominence. And Planet of the Apes, Rise of the Planet of the Apes is explicitly fascist in that there's a scene where uh, Caesar is talking to his underlings and they're asking, like, what's, what's your plan here? And he takes a stick and says, one ape is weak and breaks the stick and then holds up a bundle of sticks and says, many apes are strong. Um, so it, it's not exactly, you know, ambiguous in its, in its fascism. Um, and then he is this sort of charismatic leader that uh, takes them from this subhuman existence, literally, to a superhuman existence. Um, right. So eh, there are some unpleasant things there if you want to look for them. Fair enough, fair enough. The, the, the apes are the master race, kind of? Yeah, yeah, basically. And they, I think that it's telling that they don't have the apes kill everyone. You know, the people are killed by a disease which is tangentially related because that makes the apes as master race narrative a lot more palatable. If, like, you know, the, the people that they're going to replace, uh, we didn't kill them. They just happened to all die. Um, yeah. Well, they killed themselves, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, James Franco killed yeah. them all. Yes, it really is all James Franco's fault. Yeah. There's another thing that's kind of interesting. So Mark was talking about um, there are science fiction stories where science is bad. And it's like one of the great categories of science fiction story is people are messing with forces they don't understand. There's a wonderful uh, comic strip out there um, called Caveman Science Fiction, where it shows like a caveman uh, saying, like, I'm going to rub sticks together and make, and make fire. And then the third panel is like the cave is completely on fire and everyone's running around screaming. That's kind of how science fiction stories work. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for you. But there's a um, interesting thing is that typically in there, the scientist characters are villains. And they're like, they're messing with things that they don't understand. And they're just sort of, they're playing God. This movie has that plot, but not that character. James Franco, although he is messing with things that he doesn't understand, and he creates a virus that wipes out humanity, you're meant to think he's a good guy the whole time because he's nice to his uh, his aged and his ailing father, and he's nice to his uh, sort of pseudo-pet, uh, super-intelligent chimpanzee. Um, and he gets the pretty girl, so hero right there. It's a very kind of uh, strange take on the dangers of science movie, I think. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds cool. And James Franco, it's funny, I, it occurred to me that we, we've talked about both of those controversial Oscar hosts now. So they appear to have moved on from their debacle hosting the Oscars uh, to <laughs> yes. bigger and better things. <laughs> One one is, one as a uh, as a creator of super animals, and one as a kind of super animal herself. <laughs> Meow, I think. <laughs> or should I say, perfect? <laughs> All right, let's do a couple right. of listener feedbacks before we uh, before we wrap it in. Um, uh, Catherine writes in from um, uh, Catherine writes in from ah oh, no no lat long shame on you Catherine always write us with your latitude and longitude <laughs> and do me I don't a favor. I don't think honestly I don't think you should read the rest of her letter <laughs> I should oh come it. on let's not be mean <laughs> no, no I'm sorry <laughs> uh, and and do uh, do you know uh, put in parentheses the actual the actual uh, location as I would understand it so I don't mistake Nashville Tennessee for uh, Central China. <laughs> now, in before. a way, in a way, Nashville, Tennessee is is very much like Central China. In a, like, way. In, a, yeah, in a way, well, in a way, in a way, really, we are, aren't we all? Um, hey guys, like well, uh, well, actually, you aired my tweet question, which was totally awesome of you on the last podcast. But I wanted to clarify that I was referring to the new Thundercats that premiered last Friday, not the old Thundercats. And the new Thundercats, where the home planet and large cat population are very much intact, Lion O has a a couple of conversations with lizard dudes uh, that had been captured. The lizards tell Lion O that the cats oppress all the other animals on the planet and take all the best lands and resources for themselves, forcing the poorer animals to steal. It's also implied that the cats going out and conquering new lands is a thing that is not out of the ordinary. Uh, thus my comparing uh, of cats to uh, old imperial colonial powers... Um, and my still very important question about Panthro. Okay, maybe the question is not as important. I just wanted uh, you guys to talk about the new Thundercats. Uh, with many unnecessary levels of overthought, Catherine. Catherine, first of all, levels of overthought are never unnecessary. Don't apologize. <laughs> Don't apologize for what you are. Um, Though, though you'll find yourself sometimes. We got a comment on an article this week that was like, "Guys, this is not up to the overthought, overthinking its standard." Where's the like? Where, where's the statistical analysis? You know what I mean? Where's the Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> yeah, Mark, you, you've you've ruined our audience. Oh, um, sorry, guys. Yeah, uh, uh, we haven't seen. Um, I don't think any of us have seen the new Thundercats. Um, if only there was some sort of sword of omens to give us some sort of insight uh you know uh, uh, beyond insight 
and yeah, I like that. viewing well, of the TV show beyond viewing of the TV show. I've been watching at least the trailer and looking at the visual design and like the visual style of the show is considerably different from the old version and from the way that Panthro appears to be uh, put out there, he looks more like a kind of burlier cat. And, and the way that it's designed, what, it, what occurs to me by comparison is um, like the character of the sort of mismatched like sort of a motley crew of knights, right? Um, and I forget the name of the knight here, but but think about saying like Azim the Moor in Robin Hood, right? Um, in Robin Hood and the Merry Men, and, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in particular, is what I'm thinking of when I talk about Azim the Moor. That's the character played by Morgan Freeman. You know, there can be a Moor who like hangs out with Robin Hood, right, and hangs out with the Merry Men, and he's kind of weird, but he probably has some special skill that nobody else has or is really good to have around, right? And so his difference becomes part of the sort of specialization of the posse. Um, so you get the sense that the group is very comfortable with having this, like, one more. And I think the Knights of the Round Table have, like, one more. Uh, and, and, and they're comfortable with this one more. But if either group were to go up against, like, a whole bunch of moors, uh, we would not feel as comfortable with the presence of this more, right? Um, Sort of like if you take Caesar from Planet of the Apes movie, and instead of having him be with a bunch of apes, like he's with James Franco uh, trapped in a cave, and James Franco is trying to cut his hand off, uh, and the monkey is there. <laughs> like at that point, the monkey is a lot less threatening because the monkey is on our team, right? Um, and so it's possible for the monkey to be different from us, but still be on our team. Uh, present- potentially, he would go and get bananas. Or you would do something monkey-like in a key moment. Um, so I think that, that part of the reason why in the original Thundercats that Panthro's you know, blackness is so key is that um, the Thundercats don't function as a group very well. And Lino does almost all the work by himself. Um, <laughs> and as such, like, Panthro is this kind of peripheral figure who shows up when he goes Thundercats ho to do the nonsense at the end of the show, at the end of every episode. But like most of the time, Panthro is this character on the fringe who's kind of threatening. And that's kind of what makes him kind of interesting as a racial discourse character but it seems like in this new one he's much more of a kind of like you know burly like like almost like the Samoan quarterback in a football movie right like i'm thinking of necessary roughness the football movie that mm. i love or um something like that like like an like an oddity like an oddity that's kept around because of its skills um yeah. which still uh, he, doesn't give it yeah if i recall panthro is the the donatello of the thundercats and that he does machines right uh, i believe so yes although i'm not sure if that's what he does in this one um, I'm not positive because all I've done is watch the trailer and just looked at the sort of the much more medieval slash Japanese look. Um, and I don't mean Japanese animation look because that's there too. I mean more like, you know, it looks more like samurais and, and stuff. Um, and and uh, it looks more neoclassical. Everything is, the Thundercats have, you know, more realistic looking Japanese mustaches, like things like that. <laughs> yeah, more realistic looking cat mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> that was my big thing about the original Thundercats. It was the mustaches. Here's an important question to think about the new Thundercats is uh, how does this affect hipster clothing? Right. The Thundercats T-shirt, the Thundercats hat, um, you know, a very important staple of the ironic reappropriation of 80s trash pop culture. And now that it's 2001 uh, pop culture, what does this mean? There's actually an important new market that's being opened up for hipsters because if you were to buy the new Thundercats shirts tomorrow, you can have it so long before it was cool and like it all that time. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, um, 
I, I wasn't here for the first part of this listener feedback thing, and I haven't heard that podcast. So I'm sorry if this has already been brought up. But I feel like if you want to talk about uh, Thundercats and subalterns, really the interesting questions are about Snarf, right? Oh, totally. Like, especially relative to Orko. Because um, Snarf is an actual cat, sort of. But he's also kind of a lizard, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Because he's more cat-like than the antagonist of the Thundercats, and yet he doesn't seem to be on the same level as the Thundercats in social esteem, even though he's, and he's ridiculous, but he also, his people seem to have some sort of, like, privilege or power, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he's kind of like a, um, you know, from a, from a lizard audience's viewpoint, he's sort of an Uncle Tom character, right? Uncle Snarf? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uncle Snarf's cabin? I'd love to go to Uncle Snarf's cabin. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, on that note, moving right along. Um, <laughs> a haiku, and I, I want to read this because it's cool, but also because uh, it came via text. Uh, it came via text uh, to our uh, line, which I'll give out in a minute. Um, and, but it was, it was unsigned. It could be Robin, who has, be, who has gone in before, because... Uh, uh, he's left voicemails at our at our number before and is in the five one zero area code. Um, I, I don't want to give out the number, but if you, if you're uh, 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 five one zero and the last three digits of your phone number are the number of the beast six six six, actually six 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 six. So if your number is five one zero x x x six 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 six, write in and claim claim your haiku. Anyway, here it is. Um, this is a haiku. Uh, uh, about movies. No time for movies. I get my entertainment overthinking it. And uh, but there's a li- but but then then uh, he or she texted in again. There's a little at sign in front of or uh, overthinking it. The idea being that that uh, this person I guess gets all their entertainment on Twitter at our uh, at our Twitter address uh, at overthinking it. So uh, wrote back and said maybe it should have been. Uh, pronou- I don't know how you pronounce it. Maybe you pronounce it at or thinking it. You know, I get my entertainment <laughs> at or thinking it. Uh, well, however you get your entertainment, we hope you'll get a li- at least a little bit uh, of it here on the Overthinking Podcast every Monday. Uh, if you want to write in, it's podcast at overthinkingit.com, at overthinkingit on Twitter. And that phone number where you can call and leave a voicemail or text is 203-285-6400. Uh, we'll be back next week. Matt Rather leads. Mark Lee does machines. Peter Fenzel's cool but rude. <laughs> Jordan Stokes is a party dude. And we're I'm at so overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably <laughs> I really want you to end that with and Jordan Stokes is making a risotto because that's yeah. still one of my favorite podcast moments of all time. <laughs> Jordan, you should go stir. You should go stir the risotto. You don't want it to stick yeah. to the bottom of the pan. <laughs> I should. Whenever there's a question at the beginning, I don't want to answer. I should do my. Like, Guys, I'm going to go stir my risotto. (laughs) Get back to me. (laughs) Oh, oh, look. Here's here's another haiku that just came in just this second. I got the pop-up notification. Um, It wasn't blown up. A virus is what done it. Someone best tell Chuck. (laughs) You maniacs! (laughs) 